Good evening and welcome to the Cowries and Rice podcast, the second best China-Africa podcast you ever heard. Broadcasting from the heart of global China-Africa research, Washington, D.C., I am your host, Winslow Robertson, joined by some possibly permanent co-hosts. First is Dr. N. Kim Kalu. I never remember her full name. I apologize, Dr. Kalu. Um, who recently received her PhD in political science from the University of Nebraska, Lincoln, where she studied Nigerian perceptions of engagement with Chinese immigrants. How are you doing, Dr. Kalu? I'm doing well, thank you. Just for our uh, listeners' knowledge, how do we pronounce your full name? My full name is Dr. Nkemjika Kalu. Well, doctor is not technically full. Um, <laughs> Nkem is fine or Kalu. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Second is Andy Liu, or Andy Shui Liu, a U.S.-based China blogger on China slash communications professional in global development and formerly a CCTV journalist. Andy, I heard you were on another China Africa podcast recently. How did that go? Hi, Winslow. Um, thank you for, for having me on the show. Yes, I was uh, actually as of yesterday, I think, uh, earlier this weekend, I chatted with um, Eric Olander and Kovas Van Staden on the China Africa Project's regular podcast. And it went very well. We chatted about the recent controversy over cybersecurity involving Huawei and other Chinese multinational companies, and also about this white paper that just came out of China State Council's kitchen about uh, uh, China-Africa trade Did you read that white outlook. paper cover to cover? Um, uh, I would say I, I went through the whole paper. I didn't peruse every word, but uh, in general, yes. Not in super detail, though. As, as someone who like, does this for a living, even I couldn't read every word of that thing. But good on you for, for working so hard on that. Um, last but not least is... We try. We all try. Is L. Wong, who is pursuing her PhD from George Mason University, quite close to my house, actually, in public policy, studying African migrant communities in Guangzhou and Yiwu. Um, L, how is everything? Everything is fantastic, Winslow. And hi, everyone. Very glad to be here. Hi. I, I am so happy we're all here on this wonderful holiday. Um, and oh, speaking of which, this episode on September 2, September 2nd of 2013, also happens to be our first show. And we are extremely excited to be here together. Our goal with this podcast is to talk about all aspects of the China-Africa relationship, whether trading patterns, diaspora communities, or the prospects of naturalized Africans to play on the Chinese national men's football team. We're going to try and hit up every topic that we could think of that, that we think other people might want to hear about as well. Um, we hope to talk about some of these more academic or esoteric topics in a casual conversational way. And also, we are all big China-Africa nerds. So really, there's just an excuse for us to hang out and talk with people who share similar interests. So uh, listeners, if you are not as big of fans as we are, we apologize for nerding out. Um, Today's episode is entitled Perceptions of Sino-Africa Relations, and we aim to discuss just that, perceptions, not reality, 
not the immutable truth, simply perceptions. Whose perceptions, you might ask? I'm glad you asked that, um, nameless listener. We are going to try our best to talk about African perceptions, about Chinese perceptions, and about U.S. and Euro European perceptions of this relationship. And with an emphasis on what Africans and Chinese peoples think about this topic, we are going to commit all sorts of cardinal sins about social science research. We are going to generalize based on anecdotes. We are going to generalize based on incomplete data. We are going to make claims that are not exactly reviewed by a scholarly body or a um, double-blind peer-reviewed journal. But that is okay. We acknowledge that what we say here should not be taken as gospel. Instead, we want to add some texture and context to the wider China-Africa discussion. And what people think about the relationship itself is important. So we're not going to go over the, the, the facts and, and figures and, and, and trace the outline of the relationship in this episode. We just want to hear what people think about it. Um, and we want as many voices as possible to participate. Um, so that's, that's sort of where we're coming from. At the end of the show, we will also talk about recommendations. Um, and I don't have a cool name for that segment yet. Maybe in future episodes, we might come up with a really clever China-Africa name. But forget about that. We are going to start with some scintillating discussion. Dr. Kalu, who are you going to go first? In your research, what did people say or think about China-Africa relations? Not China itself, although that obviously is an important aspect to your answer. I meant, what comes to mind? What aspects do they like, not like, or both about the relationship? Um, that's a very valid question that you ask, Winslow. Um, what's actually been quite fascinating in my research is that the level of interaction between individual Chinese and individual Africans is not to the scale that one would assume, especially when you look at or read of um, all the different journalistic articles or general or um, information that's coming out in conversations in society about attitudes and perceptions. But so, there are some very can, major. Can, can, can I interrupt? So when yeah. you say like what I assume. Like, I'm reading a lot that so many Chinese are coming over to Africa and so many Chinese individuals are interacting with Africans on the ground. Is that, is that what you're talking about? Yeah, um, that's part of what I'm talking about. There are, there are lots of Chinese that are moving to Africa and that, quite, that is quite right. But what is also right is that the level of interaction they're having with Africans are not, is not at the level that you would assume. It's not um, as... Um, as proliferated as um, some of the common information that we have would assume it, it is. One of the things that I came across during my research process was um, a Chinese manager of a mining company in northern Nigeria, and he said something that was later reiterated when I visited urban parts of Nigeria, and that's that although there's an increasing number of Chinese in Africa and in Nigeria, what we're starting to see now is that they're reaching critical mass within a Chinese community, within their own sort of communities. And so there's a growing population of Chinese people or a bigger Chinatown, for instance, but those Chinese are interacting more with China, other Chinese in, in Nigeria, in Lagos, in Zambia, 
or wherever across the continent, but they're interacting more with other Chinese than they are with other Africans. And that has led to um, some interesting developments in terms of perceptions of the other um, and interaction that could have positive and negative consequences if not adequately managed. But um, I have heard from um, some of the more adventurous Chinese who are interacting with Africans, um, there's a need for the bigger Chinese um, population in Africa to engage more with Africans um, on a personal level that extends beyond business transactions. And, um, and for the Africans that engage with the Chinese, I got to speak with some African um, consultants that worked with the Tianxi organization also in northern Nigeria who said that with the exception of business conversation with their Chinese managers, they didn't interact very much with their Chinese managers. And, um, and their sentiments were um, reiterated with other Nigerians that I interviewed that had worked for Chinese people. Not all of them, but by and large, most of them, probably about 80% of the people I interviewed that worked for Chinese managers said they didn't have the sort of personal relationship with the Chinese managers that they would have preferred to have. Um, let me let me interrupt you real quick. So that is pretty shocking because one of the things that that I I read about a lot is these you know dynamic adventurous Fujianese shopkeepers who go into the middle of nowhere, um, rural town in, in 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 any given African country, set up shop, become a local institution, and people know who they are. And, and these sorts of people and these sorts of interactions are setting up a, a, a China-Africa relationship that is different from that uh, of an African relationship with, with Americans and Europeans, which is often dominated by um, relationships to, to government officials or, or, or aid agencies. So, you know, you have a person who maybe gets out and in their, in their white SUV from their air-conditioned compound to, to their air-conditioned office and have perhaps a more limited engagement, whereas the Chinese are, are on the ground meeting people and, and setting up, setting up a, a new level of interaction with foreigners, which, which the Americans and, and Europeans are, are in envy of. It is a new level of interaction. It is the next level, yeah. There, you have seen with the growing population of um, Chinese communities across the continent, you're not seeing the levels of excesses and largesse that have been associated with um, immigrant populations in Africa. Mm -hmm. But um, you're still not seeing that level of engagement. You're not seeing, um, like I mentioned earlier, there's not been um, adequate interaction beyond the transaction. So he's probably your, your, your Chinese trader can go and set up in the African community, and especially if he's the first person there, he does have to interact and he does have to engage with the people um, on their level. But, um, but then the relationship is not often extending past that. You know, how many Chinese are you seeing marrying the locals or, oh. um, or interacting with the locals on, 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 on a deeper personal level, eating with the locals, for instance, living and sleeping and not, you know, sharing, sharing homes, sharing um, places of worship with the locals. Um, there's that level of interpersonal interaction has just not yet um, reached the level of interaction that we see that the business community has 
or the government communities have. And so um, I think that was basically my point is people, there needs to be this greater uh, multidimensional interaction that extends beyond the transaction and beyond the, um, the negotiations and the agreements at the table. Well, all right, so you, you talked about different actors. You talked about um, these, these migrants. You talked about maybe the Chinese business community, the, the Chinese government officials. How much interaction of the Nigerians you dealt with do they have with, with these different groups? And which, if any, do they prefer? Do they differentiate at all? And like, who, who is marrying the local girl? Or who is like eating the local stuff? I mean, my, my wife is from Sichuan and she likes palm oil based spicy food. So like, Sichuan She'd people do very well in Nigeria, yeah. She, she, she would, and if I do move to Nigeria, which is an option, honey, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> like, that's, that's part of the sell. So, you know, like, what, what do your uh, Nigerian interviewees, like, say about this? Um, I'll actually do you better and use the words from a Chinese interviewee who... Um, <laughs> <laughs> who called out other Chinese in the Chinese community and told them to step outside of Chinatown um, because he lived and worked with the Nigerians that he worked with or with the other Africans. He's worked in over 10 different countries. And um, he used the interview with me to call out his fellow Chinese immigrants. And he said that every time he'd go back, and he does like to go back to Chinatown and likes to spend time um, with people that are more like him with people that understand his language. But um, he said that we weren't, you know, according to him, they weren't in China anymore. And it was important for them to reach outside of the confines and the comforts of Chinatown to engage with the locals. Um, you, I think one of your questions was um, what, on what levels of interaction are the different agents? Yeah. Um, what I found was, again, Unfortunately, there's the return to conversation or the reference of China as China, not as not enterprise, not, you know, not Chinese business owners or the Chinese government or this Chinese individual. It's this ambiguous term. And, um, and I think that a lot of that stems from my earlier point of it being such a professional relationship and such a business and agreement based um, conversation and interaction that there isn't a dif there isn't a differentiation between you know the government agency, the business enterprise, or the individual. It's all you know you're you're they they they're performing one sort of action with the other, and so it's it's reduced to this very simple um, interaction, which hasn't done a good job of addressing some of the core problems in the relationship. We talked earlier about um, potential for racism, um, especially within the Chinese community against African Americans, not African Americans, against Africans and people of darker color. <laughs> Forgive me. Um, and right. people, <laughs> people of darker complexions, and that is a problem. And um, from what I've heard from the Chinese, um, the Chinese managers that I spoke with, as well as from the Nigerians that I spoke with that work for the Chinese, there was um, there are racist attitudes that permeate their interaction with the locals, um, and and then you, if you look at the other side of the coin, there seems to be the belief that you know, for instance, Chinese goods 
are subpar or um, not long lasting or not quality. But again, the Nigerians that have been able to go to China and um, and visit with Chinese manufacturers or the Chinese engine can tell you that contrary to those um, stereotypes, there are a lot of good quality products that are available in China. And not everyone in China is trying to cheat or be corrupt. And the same is true on the other side. But um, again, I think that if we don't have the level of interpersonal interaction um, that can counter that, then you will see these sorts of ideas continue to remain and, um, and limit the relationship. So I, I want to I wanna expand, expand upon that. So you're talking about like things that have to be done um, and, and the limits of the relationship. But it also, I mean, it also seems that both Nigerians and Chinese that you talk to believe there, there is an existing relationship and, and there are things getting out of it. Business is, is that the, the overall feel of, of what people say? Oh, you know, the China-Africa relationship is we both make money. Is, is well, that it or, or yeah, do people think I mean, in other terms? The, the, the major driver for the relationship on both sides, for the Nigerian consumer and businessman, as well as the Chinese businessman, is um, what they have to gain from it. And they are winners on both sides. Hmm. Uh, although an interesting point that was raised during my research process by a Nigerian government official was um, acknowledgement of the trade, um, the trade deficit that Nigeria has with China and how much more Nigeria is buying from China than China is buying from Nigeria. But that was okay and considered a necessary investment for future development because China is investing in infrastructure development, which is expected to propel um, the Nigerian economy. They are building um, power supply, um, um, not factories, but power supply, what's the word I'm looking for? Yeah, um, whatever President Goodluck Jonathan exactly. got out they're, of his they're, recent they're, China yeah, trip. They're building generators, they're building roads, they're building railway systems, um, they're addressing some of the core limitations to um, economic development in Africa recently. And sorry, in, in Africa, yes, and also in Nigeria. And so the, the perceived long-term impact of that is a necessary um, is a necessary gain and enough of a gain to counter um, their current loss, whatever that might be. Um, and some of that is, for instance, yeah, the trade deficit or the the um, the damage that's been caused to um, local industry due to increased competition from Chinese goods. But um, but what's go ahead. So a lot of the people you you talked to felt it was sort of a, a, a necessary evil, for lack of a better term, to, to have this sort of unbalanced relationship, but they acknowledge it's unbalanced and that it is an issue. That, that's true. And then the other thing they bring up is the fact that um, a number of Nigeria's oil um, contracts, drilling contracts, are coming up for bidding soon. And um, it's expected that more Chinese corporations or China, I guess China as a whole, this ambiguous term, China. <laughs> Um, is going to have a larger stake in Nigerian um, oil. And so then you'll see that trade balance begin to even out. Oh, oh okay. Can, before I, I, I switch on to L, can you tell me 
the funniest story you heard about a Nigerian generalizing about the Chinese? Um, I if- can. It goes, it goes against everything, but yeah. Um, well, <laughs> I was interviewing this woman who um, worked, she worked for the TN. She, she, had, she just signed on to be um, a consultant trader for a TNC group that was selling, I think, an um, acupuncture machine. And, um, and I had a contact with a company that had allowed me to interview a, a good number of their consultants as well as the managers. And so she was going to be my last interview. And I actually pushed to have a woman because most of my interviews were men. And she said... Um, she got on the phone and said, no, she's not going to answer my questions. And I said, no, no, you know, th- th- these aren't difficult questions. They're not going to hurt you. Um, have you had any sort of interaction with the Chinese? No, 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 no. I don't know what Chinese is. I said, well, your, your boss, well, can you talk to me about it? No, 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 I can't do that. Well, what are your perceptions of Chinese goods? I don't buy anything Chinese. And I thought, I find that really hard to believe. <laughs> But if that's what you believe, that's what you believe. It was, it was the most baffling interview that I had. And for me, the most entertaining because there is a person on this earth that believes she has no interaction whatsoever with the Chinese at any point, even as a consumer. <laughs> that's pretty hard to do. But, but thank you so much for, for, for sharing that. All right, Elle. Hi. You have just come back from uh, Guangzhou and uh, Iwu, uh, studying African communities there. What did people there think about China-Africa relations? That is a very, very interesting question because comparing to the vast scholarship on the African immigration to China, the African immigration to China, uh, I'm sorry, the Chinese immigration to Africa the scholarship on African immigration to China is actually much, much less. So I went to Guangzhou and Yiwu with the presumption that I basically gained by reading the news and a few reports out there Mm. that the deep plane China-Africa relation actually plays a direct role in the increasing African immigration. And, uh, you know, these interviewees that I would uh, meet will probably bring up the China-Africa relation framework within a few minutes during the interviews. Oh, like in, in, in what way? Can you give an example? Like, uh, for example, um, you know, during my interviews, I realized that there are just a, two main gro- uh, groups of Africans. One is a few very successful business people um, who actually have a closer relationship with the local and even the state, uh, state Chinese government. And uh, they are the people who generally stay highly informed of the progress and any updates of China-Africa relations in general. So they are the ones who are most likely to bring out this, you know, um, overarching China-Africa relation framework within the few minutes of my interviews. <laughs> and they would say that, oh, thanks to the, um, like, the openness and uh, um, the increased investment of China's um, from China to Africa, the African business people actually can find more opportunities back in China compared to maybe like 20 years ago. Mm. And they would play like a more positive spin on this bilateral partnership 
compared to you know what we we may hear a lot of the criticism from the European or the U.S. perspectives that we may talk about a bit later. Mm. And uh, uh, for example, in EU, uh, one of the most successful uh, company um, is called Cell, an industrial company. And the founder, Mr. Mamadou Sal, um, is very, very positive about uh, not not to uh, mention the African, the China's policy towards African uh, businessmen in China, but also he's very positive about what China is doing in his own home country, which is in, in Senegal. And, uh, um, and also he's very well received by the EU local government. I think I saw on uh, his office wall that he received a reward for distinguished foreign businessmen uh, from EU mayor's office. And Whoa, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. <laughs> what is this reward and what do you have to do to get it and what can I do to get that? <laughs> I don't know. He started early. He's company was established back in 2000 and uh, um, I think it's one of the biggest uh, um, trading company for uh, textile and some uh, manufacturing goods basically the clothing industry I think um, he's doing very very well and uh, uh, the EU mayor is a very good friend of his and uh, they also have a company in Guangzhou too how, so how do you meet the mayor like that is so cool. All right, sorry, continue. Oh, no problem. I mean, it's, it's something very special, too, because, like, EU is a very, very small city compared to Shanghai, Beijing, mm. or, or uh, Hong Kong, where you probably have many, many uh, multinational companies, right? Mm. So um, for an African businessman to receive such a distinguished recognition from a local government is something very special. and. Uh, I, I didn't meet, you know, I didn't hear about any similar stories when I was in Guangzhou. And uh, I thought that um, the experience in EU was pretty eye-opening. And he's someone, you know, who would actually talk very highly about uh, the uh, Chinese engagement in Africa. And also he, his office is like in this almost a skyscraper in EU, like the building has 50 floors. Um, he overlooks the entire city, and uh, he would say that, you know, his family are all in, in EU, and his brother is managing their company in Guangzhou. They are the ones who really enjoy the benefit of this China-Africa relations. You know, they actually took the good opportunity, and they made it work. But the other group that I talked um, to, which composed the majority of the African communities, is the individual traders. You know, those who probably have a few thousand dollars and uh, they, can, they can afford the ticket from their country to China, and they would actually purchase a bulk of the uh, cheap daily products or um, the cheap clothes and then try to uh, bring them back in the suitcases or containers <laughs> and sell back to uh, I, I, I have to interrupt you. And Kim, can you say anything about the way Africans travel on airplanes with suitcases? Oh dear. Um, I, they have lots of suitcases. <laughs> it's well, really... How does the, the concept of a carry-on suitcase register? Because, you know, in America, carry-on suitcases is, you know, quite small. Um, 
but I, I, I just had a, a fantastic dinner with some Ghanaian friends of mine. They told me like they're at JFK in, in, in New York, uh, JFK Airport, there's like a special line just for West Africans or just for Ghanaians because what they consider a carry-on is like a suitcase you could put two dead bodies in. Like, like that, oh, I'm carrying it on the airplane. Um, so, uh, sorry, sorry, sorry to inter, inter, interject, L. But like, but when when you blow all this money to go to China and you come back and you bring suitcases full of stuff, uh, you know, it you can really get you can really get a lot of stuff with you. A lot, and uh, this is why there is another booming industry in China that's coming up is the shipping, <laughs> shipping companies. Um, in the international trade margin, you you know like uh, the biggest uh, uh, small commodities. Uh, market in Asia, I think. And uh, you will see a lot of Chinese people who carry the cards, you know, from their company and they try to go talk to the African traders there who try to purchase products. And then they try to help them to uh, ship all the containers uh, back to Africa. But a lot of problems that run out is, um, you know, a lot of the Africans in EU, they are from the uh, Maghreb region. So um, a lot of them don't speak any English, they speak Arabic or French, so a lot of them find it's very hard to communicate and also I feel like the African traders were generally annoyed by these um, Chinese people who want to talk to them just, uh, you know, um, while they, they were doing the shopping, so it created a, a lot of difficulty for me to try to distinguish myself from these <laughs> Chinese guys from the shipping companies, you know. And, <laughs> and, and this is specific to... Um, uh, Iwu, where, where most of these people are from the Maghreb, correct? Exactly, exactly. Because um, in Guangzhou, a lot of them are from Nigeria, Ethiopia. Of course, some of them are from Mali, Senegal, but uh, like their English um, is just so much better than the ones that I match in Iwu. And I feel like um, the Africans in Iwu, they don't really have the incentives to actually learn uh, English or Chinese because the only thing they need to do is to purchase products which can be done by using a calculator. Can, can, can you talk about that sort of calculator transaction? I, I've seen it in two documentaries, but for people listening, how yes. do you buy a ton of stuff in a calculator? Yeah, this is something simply amazing. I, I took a lot of pictures while I was there. It's, um, you know, for example, um, a, a person who was trying to buy like all the daily products, you know, to try to um, clean the bathroom or try to cook. So basically like the very, very small commodities. Mm. He's from Senegal and uh, he does not speak English. And of course the Chinese shop owners in EU, um, they don't speak French. And uh, I was just observing. Right, and the person basically just uh, used the gigantic calculator that obviously all shops have, and basically press certain numbers. So the Chinese person will press like two yuan and show it to the person. Okay, this costs two yuan, and then he would basically clean, it, clear it, and then type one point five. <laughs> and I was basically like standing there and observed the entire process from the the initial price negotiation to like how many he wants to order and uh, like on which date. So well, well, you can do how many and date yes, without any Chinese. They're all numbers. 
Okay. And this is, I think, Professor Adam Bobodeau called in his book The Calculator Language. <laughs> that is something just very unique in this, you know, African-China transaction. I don't know, like, maybe uh, back in the days when the Chinese um, just migrated to America, they did that. I don't know, but uh, just uh, this is something that's very interesting in the China-Africa transaction. <laughs> Uh, and and for those who who don't know, Professor Adams Bodomo is um, a Ghanaian, I believe, um, who who's uh, recently a professor at the University of uh, Hong Kong and who studied uh, African diaspora communities uh, in China and one of the preeminent scholars in that field. Um, and uh, yeah, if if you could, could you speak to any of the how the differences amongst the, the different Africans you met, and not just like the different African nationalities, but their nationality, their um, ethnicity in their nationality, their gender, or perhaps their age, generation, how did that affect their perception of the China-Africa relationship? Maybe if they're like in their 40s from Senegal, maybe they're a little more bullish on the relationship, maybe if they're young and heavily in debt to their family for the plane ticket, they're a little more skeptical, um, does, their, does their background make a difference? Um, yeah, as I mentioned before, um, a lot of the Africans in EU are from the Maghreb region and they are all mu Muslims and there is this one landmark in EU city which is the EU mosque. So um, you will see um, African traders go in to pray five times a day. And especially when I was there, it was um, in the mid-July. So it's actually their um, fasting period. So it was very interesting for me to uh, basically observe how they actually follow their tradition and uh, um, how they like try to try to accommodate to the Chinese way of living, but while maintaining what they have to do. Mm. Like, for example, in the trade mart, some of the Africans, when it's the time, they basically would pray on the stairs in a trade mart. But I mean, I feel like the Chinese people were very used to, um, to see the differences. So it's not like people will observe and look, you know, stare at them. Mm. Um, they are many, the male Africans. You know, during my entire stay in EU, I only saw less than maybe five African women. Um, well, did you talk to them? What did they say? I talked with one, um, one girl. She is actually a student in the Georgia Normal University. And I only got to know her because she's married to a, an, an African guy. And, uh, you know, so basically all of them hang out in this uh, exotic street area every night. Wait, wait, exotic street area? Yes, every single night. And uh, they don't go to sleep until like 4 or 5 in the morning and they don't get up until 11 or 12. So this is their living, sort of living schedule. And uh, um, they don't really speak a lot on the China-Africa relation, you know, at the macro level. Because when I asked, like, what do you think about, you know, what China is doing in Africa, China is doing a lot of investment, commercial deals, they gave me the perception that, you know, a lot of them choose to migrate to China because of individual aspiration instead of the 
push that was generated by the China-Africa relations. Mm. So this is something very interesting because from what we read in general, we would assume that you know a lot of them are brought by this um, you know new wave of um, Chinese investment and people started to grow interest interested in uh, coming to China. Um, actually, they they say that it's because of the uh, Chinese manufacturing industry that's oh. available to them. So. Should this industry be available in other countries, there might be a difference in their choice of destination. Because um, in Vietnam, there are already some growing population of Africans. Of course, it cannot compare to the scale of African communities in China. But you can already notice that you know certain Africans choose to the other Asian countries as right. a trend. So. Um, this is something that um, I feel that was um, less researched. And also, like as Inkem mentioned, the Chinese traders uh, in Africa, because my research is basically like the flip side of her research. Um, I feel like a lot of the cynicism about, you know, the Chinese like monetary orientation in Africa is not really perceived in the African communities in China. Because the African traders come to China want to make money <laughs> but people don't really put like any stigma or like any criticism on that it's like a given because china is the engine for the world economy so like it's a given that foreigners want to come to china to make money out of it um but like if we do the other way around the chinese people come into africa to open shops to try to make money and uh, you know, a lot of people would start to become a little bit like suspicious, like, what's your intention? Like, you just don't want to come to Africa to make money. You don't want to do anything else. <laughs> but I mean, I didn't notice any criticism from the Chinese people on the African traders, you know, with the same incentive. Okay. Yeah. Well. Um, yeah. So that was just, I mean, um, it's, it's a very, very, um, interesting area and I feel like uh, there is a lot of further research that needs to be done and uh, of course it's just uh, my pilot research area um, in the future definitely um, I will go back to the two cities and try to conduct more interviews because the immigration aspect of the China-Africa relations is actually missing mm. from a lot of like the topics you know under the spotlight we talk a lot about the investment, trade, aid, or even security issues, but we don't really talk about the immigration uh, effect or like you know any implications and uh, any any effects on both uh, sides because um, the African diaspora community um, has not like the study of African diaspora community has not really touched on the Africans in Asia. Mm. So this is something that needs to be um, like catch a cockata. Well, L, when you become a doctor and you've published a few books, um, I will I will say that you were the one who started the push to to research African diasporas in Asia, and I will hope for an autograph. <laughs> Thank you for the encouragement. That's the goal, I guess. Okay, we are going to Andy. Andy, who's an Renaissance man, international man of the world. Um, you have uh, professional media experience. You were in 
working for CCTV. Uh, you have dealt a lot with international organizations. Does the China-Africa relationship, did the China-Africa relationship ever come up in your working life, in your social life? And if so, what do people say about it? Oh, yes. I'm, well, I wish I was the man of the world, but <laughs> uh, I'm not. Um, thank you. I have to say I'm, I'm really, really fascinated by the conversations that you guys have had so far. And I, I just have, you know, I, I keep, I, I'm, you know, I keep getting amazed by this whole China-Africa relationship. I have to see it, learn and see how it um, goes on and develop. I have to say at first that I am a constant learner from you guys and from our audiences on this issue because I have never personally been to Africa. And of course, this is on my travel list, definitely. <laughs> um, that said, um, I think Africa or China-Africa relations have um, been in my life since, I think, since... I was a child because I remember uh, the first time I had this concept of, of China-Africa cooperation is um, hearing about the news from the state-owned company, uh, which is a construction company that my father works for, in that, in that um, uh, the company helped uh, the people in Kenya build a stadium. So that's probably the, the earliest exposure that I had. Um, on China-Africa relations, China-Africa cooperation. And since then, I have just, you know, learned more and more and more about this issue, especially meeting a lot of people. Uh, well, what, what, what kind of people have you met? What, like, I have, I have, I have met academics. I have met um, professionals. Um, other than academics, and I have met um, students, um, all kinds of people um, from Africa, and as well as from China, uh, working on China-Africa uh, issues. Especially, I'm really thankful for the Sino-Africa group that Winslow, you are organizing. You organize um, in DC through this net network. I have also met a lot of people and learned a lot about it. Um, and also in Washington, D.C., I know um, what people talk might be a little bit different from what's happening on the ground. This is also, you know, uh, why this is also encouraging me to really want to visit the people, visit the places in Africa. But uh, just out of the few years that I have lived, lived in D.C., I have noticed quite a trend um, here, you, you know, we have a lot of events going on all the time in Washington, D.C. And among all the events I have been to, I would say the second popular kind of events are those events that have to deal with technology, innovation, and all that fancy stuff. Because you go there, you always see, you know, people taking the full house, leaving maybe only two or three chairs, empty chairs. I have to do an event about that. And right. Yeah. You're, 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 you, you know it very well. However, uh, it cannot compete with anything about China. You, <laughs> wherever, whenever there is an event about China, including China, Africa, actually, especially China, Africa events, it's always full house with people standing in the room. 
And I believe you and me, Winslow, that we have both experienced that. Um, back in May this year, uh, um, I attended this uh, fascinating event at the Center for Global Development on, on this uh, China's a, a, aid. A data um, a database aid. Of, of Chinese aid towards Africa. Right, and I think that's where we met. Um, so it was a very good event. Uh, so, and then that news, although it's, you know, up to debate how much is the aid that China had, you know, had to offer to Africa and what's the definition, and it's up, it's up for debate, but that information went viral after the event um, <laughs> and it caused a lot of discussions and it was also actually quoted by a scholar with the China, Chinese Academy of Social Science at a Brookings event later on um, this year, uh, I think I thought, it was I thought that was like main. two weeks after the event because I right. remember that I, I went to the Brookings event. I saw that, uh, NCHEM there. Right. Yeah. Oh, okay. You know, that popular event um, had had uh, think tank people, government officials, um, and other high-profile guests from Africa, China, and the U.S. talking about U.S.-China-Africa trilateral relationships. And that, you know, a data, that figure was also quoted by a uh, Chinese uh, um, researcher. So, yeah, all these fascinating events, people, um, and of course, online resources and networks that I have to, I, I'm fortunate enough to tap into and to, uh, to take advantage of really helps me understand and learn a lot. Um, about China-Africa relations, and, and of course, make a lot of making a lot of good friends. And, and I mean, has there been any particular experience that you've had, let's say, in the past few years, where people said something really profound about the China-Africa relationship here in DC? So that uh, has made you really think. When I, you know, actually, when if you ask me this, I I'm really impressed by a lot of view points expressed by people from people within the Sino-Africa group. Um, I remember in back in June, I hosted this um, Google Plus Hangout mm. in the wake of the illegal Chinese miners in Ghana scandal. Um, I, I remember inviting you Winslow as well as the Ghanaian blogger, Jamil yeah. Abdullah, who is very popular and influential, as well as a uh, Chinese, a brilliant Chinese young guy who is actually working for a Chinese company in, in Africa right now, uh, Huang Hongxiang, talking about um, the illegal minor issue. But then beyond that, also uh, Chinese state-owned companies overseas investment in Africa. And just from that conversation, I it, it just struck me that how how much more we need to communicate, to talk between people mm. in Africa, in China, and in, in, in America about each other's perceptions. I, uh, because I, re I remember um, Jamila mentioned or commented that she had um, never, never uh, learned so much about Chinese, uh, Chinese person's perspective um, on China, Africa until that, um, that moment. <laughs> and I also remembered um, Huang Hongxiang commenting on the the reasons he saw as the barriers for 
a smoother and open, more open engagement and communication between uh, the Chinese people and African people when it comes to um, overseas, a Chinese overseas investment benefiting the local people and having you know a better image around the world. Um, he basically said that um, there was there is a intrinsic structural problem within the Chinese state-owned companies systems that prevents its employees um, from being more open, being more engaging when it comes to um, interacting with local, with uh, their stakeholders in the local markets. Um, and also there is a, um, maybe, you know, related to, there's a cultural factor uh, mm. within the, you know, within the Chinese culture, cultural system that uh, sort of, um, stops people from being openly openly communicating uh, with others and uh, rather uh, people tend to look inward uh, look inward uh, more often um, so that observation prompted me to think as a Chinese person based in the US and um, in that how more effectively effectively people like us uh, the younger generation from China, Africa, and America could help further this engagement, helping Chinese people open up, helping African people understand more, uh, you know, um, uh, the Chinese perspective. So I think, you know, what we're doing right now is, is exactly that. <laughs> I, I, I appreciate it. I appreciate uh, the, those sentiments. All right, I'm going to ask a quick sort of open-ended question, and then we're going to go to recommendations because we are over the time I sort of allotted for ourselves. Um, I, I want to talk about how, how maybe like the U.S. and the Europe kind of have perceived China-Africa relations since the 60s uh, around. Um, and, and I say that because when uh, I was doing my master's, there was actually a ton of good books in the library I could find on China-Africa relations that were uh, published in, in, in the 70s and, and the 80s. Um, and I was like, who was doing this in the 60s and 70s? Uh, but, but apparently, uh, China-Africa relations in the context of the Cold War was something that was of great interest to the US and, 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 and European governments. And, and there was research being done because it was kind of viewed as like a Cold War kind of threat. Um, but that's great for me because I have all this great secondary literature that I can access quite easily. Um, right, right now, uh, I'd say in, in, in the mid 2000s is, is when, is when at least people in the U.S. started to really pay attention. Um, and, and I'd say a lot of it had to do with Sudan, the Darfur issue, um, and, and Chinese involvement with the Sudanese government. Uh, and then after that, a more generalized rise of China narrative uh, in the in the lead up to the Olympics, where everything China was doing in every part of the world just became more interesting. Um, and so, yeah, there's been an explosion of, of great secondary literature that, that I can get my, my hands on. But I'd, I'd say a lot of this most mid 2000s and it. Most of it is still, at least in the U.S., focused like on China itself. So, like what China is doing in other countries, it's not like a China-Africa relationship. It's more like 
Chinese foreign policy. At least that's been my experience in D.C. Um, I, I wanted to, to, to ask all of you guys, you know, you're all D.C.-based China-Africa experts now. What have your experiences in this city been? When I go to a happy hour and drink responsibly, and I say I study China-Africa stuff, I mean, people are interested, and they'll talk to me about it, and they'll have something to say. Um, what, about, what about all of you? Um, I think that there's still, you, you make a very valid point when you talk about the fact that it's viewed in the perception of, of um, what, what moves, what moves um, are the Chinese making and how does that affect um, Western interests. And um, you talked about the 60s and how there was all of a sudden this growing interest in Chinese moves in Africa. And what was significant about that, especially during the Cold War, was as China had pulled away from the Soviet Union and began to express itself on a more individual level, on a global scale. It was looking for support from African countries and from smaller developing countries. And, um, and I think that there was a need from the U.S. and from Western entities to begin to understand what that meant for them threat-wise. Because with the Cold War um, and the bipolar state of global politics, um, there was always the threat of war breaking out. And so there was a need to understand the other side and what they were doing. And so while China wasn't Russia, China remained communist. And if China was supporting communist nations in, in Africa or, or, or um, African colonies that were looking to be independent and instill socialist or communist governments, then those were perceived to be of varying levels of threat against capitalism, um, you know, at the global scale. Um, and so there was a lot of research that was done from that perspective. But interestingly enough, there was also a lot of research that was done by um, African scholars mm -hmm. on the role of the Chinese in um, African independence and African development and growth, um, especially a lot of work went into looking at um, the impact of the, of the Tanzania Zambia railway system, Tazar. Mm. It's amazing how many books have been written on that, but a lot of the information and research that was done on that by scholars came from either Chinese scholars or African scholars. You didn't see a lot of um, work done by Westerners with regards to that, but that was a pivotal part of Chinese engagement and is something that remains to this day um, a, 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 an anchor for China-Africa relations. And when China wants, when the Chinese government talks about the relevance of Africa <laughs> and Chinese development, they talk back about how they built this railway and how there was this level of um, collaboration and solidarity. Hmm. Um, so that's what I'm going to say, because otherwise I can keep talking, <laughs> but I'll stop there. I, I, I appreciate that. Elle, Andy, anything you want to contribute? Um, I definitely had my share of experiences in going to events, you know, held uh, on China-Africa topics. And uh, I definitely didn't want it mean to be a ge ge generalized comment, but I definitely feel like a lot of the voices coming from the uh, U.S. or European public sector would tend to be a little more um, criticism uh, oriented, <laughs> while a lot of the um, perspectives from the academia or uh, from maybe private investor perspective, they might tend to be more neutral and they would want to look at more like historical aspects or the cultural aspects instead of just the 
trade and commercial um, engagement that the public sector tends to focus on. So there are definitely um, a lot of the um, diverse views, I would say, and uh, um, I, I guess a lot of, uh, I guess my feeling would be um, for readers who are interested in this subject, it's better to um, like try to read as much um, and uh, stay informed instead of like being influenced. <laughs> <laughs> so unlike other things, you should read a lot for this. For other topics, you don't have to read that much. But for China, Africa, really read broadly. That's what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. And I try to uh, keep an open mind and learn more about the historical part because uh, my feeling is a lot of people, they started to get interested in this um, area, maybe just uh, from recent years. And um, and actually, Chinese engagement started even back in the 1950s and the 1960s. Um, and you will probably have a relatively different perspective if you um, include, you know, the historical facts and uh, the previous engagements, mm. other than the commercial intense engagements that happened during the past decade. Fantastic, and I think you make a very good point. As a historian, I think that uh, history should be added to every topic of conversation uh, and just inserted no matter, no matter the, the subject. But thank you for validating my, my point of view. Andy, any last words? Uh, yes, um, I, uh, I guess I have a couple you know, so-called recommendations after you know, hearing about what you guys have um, offered, the, the insights you guys have offered. Uh, one is um, that, correct me you know, if I'm wrong, wrong, but this is actually you know, what I would like to see um, to happen maybe at the intergovernmental level is that when we talk about U.S.-China-Africa relations, um, uh, we may also want to look, look further um, to, sort, to um, how we can uh, build a, an actual framework and, you know, for implementation um, beyond the buzzword uh, trilateral relations. I know that we have the FOCAC, um, framework, you know, as the China-Africa um, cooperation, for China-Africa cooperation. We also have, say, in the U.S., for example, the USAID, who has been doing a lot of great work in, um, in, in Africa. Uh, when I was uh, reading, when I was uh, reading the white paper from the State Council about China-Africa trade and cooperation, uh, as well as, the, you know, on the USAID website, I started to see this, you know, this natural complementarity between the priorities of you know both countries uh, and their work in Africa, the Chine Chinese tend to focus more on infrastructure, on agriculture, and on and all and on all that good stuff. And you know the U.S. Uh, AID tends to focus more on good governance, um, anti-corruption, public health, and I think you know. Uh, the three of them can really, really work together under this sort of collaborative and healthy competition between the U.S. and China for Africa under a sort of, you know, whatever nice uh, institutionalized framework. That's what I really would like to see. And um, on the other hand, uh, I think civil society people, especially the media, can also play a very, very constructive role um, and to to complement what governments can do to promote uh, U.S.-China-Africa 
relations as well as bilateral relations, uh, US, Africa, and China, Africa. Um, and to, to do this, I think we might want to listen more to the African people to really know and understand what they want out of this uh, relationship. Uh, then back going back again to my conversation earlier with you guys, including uh, you, Huang Hongxiang, and Jamila Abdullah at the Google Plus Hangout, Jamila made really good points um, in what African people want. Uh, knowledge, capacity, um, the, the, the ability to really uh, sustain the development themselves and um, uh, to help local people enhance their, the level of their livelihoods. I think these are really the things that um, we as NGOs or you know, individuals or media need to keep in mind whenever we talk about this trilateral relationship, what, um, what we can do to maximum, maximize the benefits for the people on the ground in Africa, in China, and in America. So these two parts, I think, are oh. what I would like to see. All right. Thank you so much, Andy, for that very optimistic take and, and, and I think very valuable advice. Um, we are going to try and blaze through our recommendations, if that's okay with all of you, um, because we are so spectacularly late. We could joke, I guess, about Africa time. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, we're going to recommend something. It's going to be quick, and we're going to recommend why we want it, why we want our listeners to, to know about this. So I'm going to start with me. I would like to recommend an article um, on, on Tea Leaf Nation slash The Atlantic, which is called On Being African in China. When a student from Ghana arrived in Beijing, she hoped to serve as a cultural ambassador, but instead became an unwitting spectacle. It's by Zara um, Baitier, and I'm 100% sure I'm mispronouncing your name, Ms. Baitier. I'm super sorry. Uh, it was on August 28th, and it's basically what it's like to be an African in China, a young student, and and all these different ideas of race and nationality and 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 how to compose yourself when everybody's looking at you and i just found it fascinating and and a, a great china africa piece uh dr kalu what about you um i have a couple um recommendations the first one is um some of the works by emmanuel heavy he has two books he's a Ghanaian student that studied in um in China during the 70s and 80s, I believe it was, quite fascinating because he starts out with this very rosy outlook on um, on Chinese society, and you can read through um, how his interactions with um, with the Chinese society affected him, and then his perspectives, and he ends up at the end adamantly pushing for Africans to think and do for themselves as opposed to attempting to just copy and paste somebody else's development program. Um, and then the other recommendation is more of a request for information than a recommendation. Um, towards the end of my research process, I picked up um, from some academics in Africa that there's an increasing number of Chinese women that are moving to Africa to marry African men. Smart. And I want to know if this is true. So if anybody has any information or knows anything, or even if it's just a wonderful little story, I'd love to hear more about that. That is definitely going to be a future podcast episode. Um, uh, quick thing, uh, Emmanuel Heavy, we're going to definitely talk about also in a future podcast episode. Um, 
wrote some great stuff. I think actually in the in the sixties. And yeah, it might if, be older than that. If you're in China, be very careful trying to get his books because he's super anti-Chinese in an African student of China, anti-Chinese government. Just a heads up. Um, uh, L, what about you? Uh, yes, um, the first recommendation would be uh, Dr. Adams Bodomo's books and articles, as uh, um, Winslow has already mentioned. And he recently loc relocated from Hong Kong to University of Vienna. But uh, if you just uh, Google his name and all his articles on the uh, Africans in Guangzhou, EU, and uh, his book Africans in China. It's basically, um, it should be like a handbook for everyone who's interested in the subject. And also, um, Dr. Heidi Hogan, and he's from the uh, University of Norway. I think he's, uh, she, she, so she, uh, she's from University of Norway, and she did a few research on the Nigerians in China, particularly in Guangzhou. And that will be very interesting for someone who wants to look from the religious perspective and uh, um, and how you know the Nigerians who worship the um, Christianity and how they integrate that cultural into their lives in China and uh, of course uh, for who wants to uh, learn more about the globalization in general um, Mr. Gordon Matthews book inside Chongqing Mansions. Um, he has a particular a specific chapter on the uh, African traders who um, who do trade in Hong Kong and how that um, brought Africa into the globalization uh, uh, value chain. And that's just something very uh, interesting to look at uh, from the international trade perspective. Fantastic. Uh L, yes. you 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 definitely uh, said way too much because <laughs> nobody listening is going to be able to read all of that. But thank you so much for 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 your incredibly valuable insights, and I and I second everything that she she said. Everything she said is 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 on the money in terms of great Sino Africa stuff. Andy, we're going to finish off with you. Well, you, I think you guys have shared very great resources already. I think you know, as you mentioned, Winslow. Um, you know, our audiences, our listeners might not be able to remember all those great titles, but I guess there's a place that they can go refer to, you know, for Sino-African resources, which is the, your newsletter, right? I hope I'm right. And uh, uh. yeah, I, I'm, I'm, you know, you, you, you can definitely talk more about it. And also, I actually, you know, personally, I would like to share my my, you know, pleasurable surprise at CCTV Africa with, uh, with you guys. <laughs> it's because that I um, really enjoyed uh, watching some of its programs um, uh, from C uh, produced by CCTV Africa. Uh, it, struck, uh, me, it struck me as a um, TV uh, a media outlet with programs about Africa, Produced by Africa and voiced by African people, produced in Africa and voiced by African people. So you know, I never, you know, I, I did, I haven't seen similar types of uh, TV programs about Africa before. Um, so yeah, mm. just a personal reflection. Uh, fantastic! Thank, thank you so much. And I will um, write up this. Uh, this podcast and, and, and mention our, our recommendations um, in, in the write-up uh, in case you didn't catch everything. 
All right, I'm going to finish by asking, how do people find all of you? Do you have a uh, website or a Twitter account or both or, or publication, Dr. Kalu, that you would like to let us know about? Let's start with you, Dr. Kalu. Um, I have a dissertation that's available on the interwebs. Um, if you Google my name and China Africa, it pulls up immediately. And I will find your dissertation and link to it um, on the write-up. Wonderful. Um, <laughs> that's probably the best way to access. Otherwise, um, I think I, ha I have a blog. It's nkemkalu.wordpress.com. I think that's the right address. Um, but otherwise, um, I will probably be making more frequent um, appearances at the Cowries and Rice blog and Kim Kyle. I welcome you with open arms to, to the Cowries and Rice blog. Elle, what about yourself? Uh, yes, um, I'm very excited to share with you about uh, the new website that um, me and my team have built. It's called the Africa Daily. So it's three www.theafricadaily.com and theafricadaily.com not just africa daily the, the africa, africa daily. daily the very important <laughs> uh, we provide uh, we try to stay um stay up to date and we provide uh, most information from the news uh, report to uh, research to columnists to special um, experts articles and it's just uh, something that will be um, very very interesting to check it out if you're interested in China Africa topics and uh, we also have a Twitter account um, it's the Africa daily so the same thing so welcome everyone to follow us and fantastic and, and I would like to highly recommend Al's website and uh, Twitter account um, it's basically the website I wanted to make when I was uh, younger and uh, more daring, um, and now I'm I'm old and don't have. Winslow, you're dreams. still young and daring. <laughs> <laughs> and but it's it's really fantastic, and thank you, Andy, for 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 the support. Andy, take us home. Where can people find you? Um, I have a blog as the you know main means for me to learn more about China Africa issues and meet. Um, people working in this field, which is ChinaOpenMic.com. China Open Mic is one word. Mic is M-I-C, ChinaOpenMic.com. And I'm also active on Facebook and Twitter. Um, the handles are both China Open Mic. So if How do you, you spell Mike, just to, just to be sure? M-I-C. Fantastic. Yeah. And... As for myself, you can find me at uh, cowriesrice.blogspot.com. Cowries is C-O-W-R-I-E-S, rice, R-I-C-E, dot blogspot.com. My Twitter account is Winslow underscore R. And I write and tweet about China, Africa stuff. Uh, I have a newsletter that I'm debating whether to link to or not. Um, we'll see. And we're... I don't know, 30 minutes over time. That is sort of what I maybe kind of expected. Thank you so much for listening. Thank all of our guests for, for being on and, and having a really fantastic discussion. And I hope and we hope that you have a lovely day. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.